Welcome to Season 3 of This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley, a podcast about the Bay Area, technology, and culture. I'm your host, Sunil Rajaraman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Yasha Kekiswold. Hey, uh, Sunil, what's happening today, man? How you doing? Uh, another day in pandemic life. Uh, all, all good, all things considered. I, this is not about our guest, but I, I believe that I saw on Instagram that you finally got a Peloton in. Are, are you like up on number one in the classes already? You know, uh, it's, I haven't yet taken my first class. It's sitting there, but I have high ambitions and I've become a quarantine cliche. <laughs> That's funny. Well, um, maybe you should do some live streaming of yourself when you do your first class. I might tune in. No chance. <laughs> you know, this is not related to Peloton, obviously, or you during quarantine, but I've been thinking about a lot of the conversations we've had with the guests that have been on the podcast. A lot of them have come to the Bay Area because of college, because of university. Is that a thing that is a topic that we should be talking about more regularly? Like people come to the Bay Area just because of Stanford, just because of Berkeley? It almost feels like we should be having that conversation in reverse, given uh, what's happening to higher education right now. But yeah, it's, this, this entire topic is pretty worth, worth exploring. Well, apropos of nothing, um, we have an awesome guest on today, um, Charles Hudson, who's a managing partner at Precursor Ventures today, who, like the question that I asked you, came to the Bay Area because of school. He is, uh, you know, kind of a Silicon Valley pioneer in many ways. He was part of a, a venture fund called SoftTech, which is one of the first seed stage funds here in the Valley. It's now called Uncork, but um, he, he has a, a fund called Precursor Ventures and is investing in entrepreneurs at the earliest stage of their careers. And Charles has been an operator. He's kind of deeply intertwined into the founder community here in the Bay Area. He's a black investor. And our conversation today kind of ranges all of those topics. I really enjoy the part about media, but uh, you're really going to enjoy today's discussion. Charles, we're super excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, um, I'm curious. I've seen your name around in the Bay Area for a while, but I don't know if you are a Bay Area native. Are you from here? It feels like it, but I was actually born in Michigan. So I came to Northern California in 1996. And other than a brief stint living in Japan for work, I've basically been here ever since. As a, as a young kid growing up in Michigan, was there ever a point in time where you're like, I am going to San Francisco? Never. Before <laughs> I came here, the only time I'd been to California was my cousin was in the Marines and I went to San Diego for his graduation. And uh, I'll never forget the first day I came to Northern California as a Michigander. I'm like, oh, California is warm. So I showed up in the Bay Area with a bag full of shorts and T-shirts. And uh, you can imagine how that went, even in May. <laughs> we bought one of the, the sweatshirts that say San Francisco on them, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Everybody has that story. Well, so, that, so that's fascinating. So you had one experience coming into California, starting down in Southern California, which has got all of its attributes that some people like and some people don't. And then um, you come up to the, to the San Francisco Bay Area and, and then you leave. And then what happens? Do you go off to college? Do you choose to work in an industry? Like what brings you to San Francisco? I came here for Stanford undergrad and 
I came and visited, and of all the schools I visited, it's the place that I felt most comfortable and most at home. And I really liked it. And at various times, I've thought about leaving. So after graduation, I almost moved to New York to do the investment banking thing, like many Stanford undergrads. And I ended up staying here to work for Incutel, the CIA's venture capital group. And that was a lot of fun. At one point in time, I thought about going back east to work in venture capital in sort of the Boston area but decided instead to stay and do business school here at Stanford. And at various other times I've had professional or personal opportunities to move, but I really like it here. And I don't really have any desire to leave. Um, did, I, did I hear so that Charles, right? Charles, uh, D- so we're doing that. We, yeah, we we're going to talk over one. each other. We we the tip jar. Yeah, you see, you know, the tip jar. I like this. Before you jump in, Sunil, I heard CIA and investments. Is that right? Like the government CIA. You worked for the government. You lived in San Francisco and you made investments on their behalf? People always ask me, like, tell me something that you think happens in the Bay Area that doesn't happen in other places. And it's hard for me to think of good examples, except for how I got my first job in venture. So I worked at, and you you all are of the age that this company will probably resonate for you. I was an intern at Excite at Home in late 99, early 2000. And my one of my mentors and managers there, her husband ran Incutel, the CIA's venture capital group. And as my internship was wrapping up, I went to her and said, hey, I think I'm going to take this finance opportunity in New York. I'm really excited. She said, hey, before you do that, you should go talk to my husband because he started this venture capital firm and he could really use some help. I knew almost nothing about venture capital at the time. I just knew I trusted her judgment on people. And if she said I should meet her husband and hear what he's doing, I was going to hear him out. And that's how I ended up becoming a venture capitalist for the first time. Now we'll just wait so, for the quiet uh, so spot. Charles, uh, so we, we, now we did the thing where I was being too polite and I waited too long for Yasha to, uh, uh, to interrupt me, but we're, we're good now. I don't think it's going to happen again. So little known fact, um, I don't know if Charles remembers this, but I have pitched him. Uh, yes. Did you know that, Yasha? God, seriously? I had no idea. How small is this place? I, sa- I, I sat in a... Uh, in a boardroom, I'll never forget this. It was at uh, kind of AOL headquarters. Like strangely, um, I think you had an office there uh, when you were part of Soft Tech, Charles. And I remember sitting in a room with you. Now, the way that ends is they did not invest, sadly. Uh, so, but we did as a consolation prize get him on the podcast. I guess whatever. Five years later, that's pretty good, right? Yeah, I remember. I remember that meeting, and you and ironically, some of your coworkers from that startup ended up working at other startups in my portfolio later in life. You know, it's just a, it's all it's all a circle of life in Silicon Valley. It's all just the circle of life. Um, Charles, I, you know, it's hard to have a conversation right now about Silicon Valley without the raging Twitter war between technology and media, and. Yasha and I like to think of ourselves as neutral parties in this because we're not journalists. We just kind of have a podcast that we do for fun. We're, you know, we're obviously lifelong tech people. Weigh in on it for me. Um, what, what's your take on what's going on? Why is this happening? And how will it ultimately end, in your opinion? I don't know how it ultimately ends. I can tell you what my perspective is on this whole topic It seems to me that for most of tech's life, I think two things were true. Most people didn't care that much about technology because it didn't impact their everyday life. 
So tech was like its own beat that didn't bleed over into society, politics, and culture. And I think for a long time, most people in tech, maybe with some exceptions about technology that touches defense or weapons or things like that, I think most people said like the impact that technology companies have on society is unambiguously good. I think the last five years have really changed, maybe the last 10 years, have changed both of those dynamics. Now, you know, technology is a part of everyone's life. Everyone has a smartphone. Everyone interacts with technology. Your job and the way you work is being shaped by the products that technology companies are building. So I feel like tech went away from being this kind of niche single beat to something that's a part of every story. And I think that means technology is getting scrutiny and review from people who are not from the industry. You know, I think it's for any industry, when you get covered by the people that know your beat, there is a tendency to become somewhat sympathetic to the plight of the people in the industry and you understand the nuances and ins and outs. And I think what we have now is we have some people with fresh eyes looking at technology and saying, wait a minute, like, what are the implications for automation on jobs? And what are the implications for things like the gig economy on, you know, worker pay? There's all of these questions that are being asked, I'd say, from a more adversarial point of view, or maybe more skeptical. Maybe adversarial is too strong a word. A more skeptical view that these things are unambiguously good. And I think as some tech companies have become large enough to be nation states of their own, and they've become principal ways that people consume information, it's called into question the role that they play in society and the decisions they make around whose voices get heard and how have much larger implications outside of the tech sphere. And I feel like all industries go through this adolescence and relevance phase. And I feel like sometimes in technology, we want to have it both ways. We want to be like revered and loved and not criticized and seen as like universally good, but we also want coverage. And I don't, I, I, don't I think, think that that's, that's a great, I think that's a great assessment. Um, and uh, you just, the follow on question to that would be, I have been pretty disturbed by the extremity of behavior we've seen just as it relates to this debate. There's just, it feels like a lot of people are overreacting and Twitter is just turning into a cesspool of just angry, angry individuals. Why haven't we seen more, I don't know, leadership, it feels like with regard to this debate, it feels like, you know, people should step in either on the the tech side or the journalist side, I don't know, uh, and just say, like, look, let's just all be mature adults about this and figure it out. Where, why is there such a void in leadership? And, you know, is anyone going to step up and just say, hey, you know what, let's, let's be a rational voice here. And it's okay for tech to get scrutinized. It's okay for journalists to do their job. And everybody plays a vital role. Like, what's, What's going on there? Lack of leadership. I think, I think we're talking about two audiences who don't understand each other. I have friends who are journalists who are like, we criticize lots of companies. Like we're not singling out tech companies for criticism. Like part of the role of journal, journalism is to ask tough questions and to be critical in the same way that political journalists are critical about the decisions that politicians make. And whether you like it or not, celebrity journalists are critis- critis- critical of the decisions that celebrities make. I just think tech's not accustomed to criticism. And I think a part of why you see such a backlash is I think most people in tech are like, well, my intention with this product I built was noble and good. 
And I think what some of the journalists are saying, well, I understand your intention. Let me tell you about how your intention or your desires are playing out in the real world. And this is a very new conversation for tech to like be confronted with a gap between maybe an entrepreneur's aspiration and the actual real world impact of a product or service that they've built. So the criticism is new. I also think tech Twitter, and I'm part of it, is a tribal club. And I think if you're part of that tribe, attacks on prominent members of the tribe can feel like an attack on all. And I think part of what you're seeing is this sort of how dare you criticize this person. This person is one of us. And it's not okay to say bad things about that person or that type of person. And so I think you have in media an industry that's accustomed to being critical or skeptical of the claims that people make and doing what I think they think of as their normal job and an industry that's like adjusting to more scrutiny, but where the people are highly networked and find common cause. And I don't know, I don't know how this, this ends. Like some of the people on both sides, both the journalists and the, uh, the people in the tech industry that are fighting, they have massive audiences, followings, and platforms. They work at huge venture capital funds. They have tens of thousands, or in some cases, maybe in millions of followers. And then you have journalists at publications that are some of the largest in the, the world. I think eventually we'll figure out how to respect each other's roles, but I don't think that's going to happen quickly. I don't think either side feels like they want to cave. I think that the tribal angle is... Um, really smart, Charles. Uh, uh, that point of view really resonates with me. Like when somebody goes after, for right or for wrong, someone who I feel like is associated with my ideals or maybe in my friend circles, like I'm going to get upset as well. So I think that's that's a really interesting way to look at it. So thank you for sharing that. I'm really curious, uh, how many portfolio companies do you have right now? Is it more than a dozen? Like it's a lot, right? Oh boy. Uh, we normally don't disclose, but I'll tell you, we have 202. Okay, so that's a that's a good number. That, <laughs> so that includes, but, but that's historical investment since the beginning of Precursor. That includes companies that have sold, shut down. That's sure. like cumulative companies we've invested in since day one. Got it. Awesome. So so here's the context for that. It all related to this discussion. You get uh, maybe a couple hundred companies and founders and executives at those companies that are kind of watching what's happening in this tribal battle. It may be only taking place on Twitter, but it's still happening. What are you telling the companies and the executives in your portfolios right now? Or what advice would you give them if they asked you about how to navigate through um, exactly what they're seeing happening? I think I've, the advice I've given some of them is is generally like, is this really your fight? Do you feel directly impacted by this conversation that's happening between these two camps of people? Is this something you really want to or need to weigh in on? And a lot of them have said, well, probably not. What I will say though, is for a lot of them, I said, you've got to understand we live in a world now where if you go to approach a journalist for coverage of your startup and your launch plans, you have to go in understanding that they're not your, they're not an extension of your PR team. Yeah. There's a chance you will talk to them and the reaction that they will have to your company, its product and some of its decisions will be skeptical and they might write about it. And I think there was a period of time where people felt like, well, the journalists and the press is sort of an extension of our PR and marketing team. And like, they're only, they're either going to write nice things about us or they're not going to write at all. And I don't think that's healthy. I think there are lots of things that startups and small companies do that are worthy of criticism. 
And I've told a bunch of our portfolio companies, like, this is the world we live in. There's a chance that they will hear your labor-saving innovation, and they're going to think about the workers who are impacted by the nature of the product that you're creating, and they're going to choose to write about that. You know, your epic battle with the San Francisco city government to, you know, win, win the right to use your service might be reinterpreted as yet another startup that's, you know, trampling on well-established laws to make a buck. You just have to understand that the world's a little different and go into those conversations with eyes wide open. Uh, I want to shift gears just for a, for a second away from, from this uh, media tech debate into, you know, it really felt like I want to say uh, it was about six weeks ago where, where we as a country had a moment um, where we recognized uh, issues around racial inequality, systemic racism, and, you know, a lot of people coalesced around, around this, this movement. And it felt like, you know, it felt invigorating in, in, in ways. Do you think that, um, you know, we've sustained that momentum, Charles? And have we, you know, was that really a moment or in your, in your opinion, was that a temporary moment in time? I think it's a moment. I don't know what comes next. And here's why I think it's a moment. If I think about the evolution of my experience as a Black person in tech, I've only worked in tech and venture capital the whole time I've been here. That's like all I know. So I can't talk about other industries. When I first got here, if I think about the evolution, first people said, well, tech doesn't have any of society's problems. We're not racist. We're not sexist. This is all about ideas. It's a meritocracy. Uh, That lasted for a very long time. Then people said, okay, well, maybe we're not as fair as we think we are. You know, there's not a lot of women. There's not a lot of people of color getting through the system. Maybe it's not just about the ideas. So let's do the first easy thing, which is let's include women and people of color, frankly, like me, who are sort of like one degree adjacent. They went to the schools we went to. They... um, you know, worked at companies where we've worked, like they're known. And I think what surprised some of these folks is when they started asking us, what's your experience has been like, it's not that like, oh, like we've had no challenges whatsoever. And so the, to me, the big question is if you look at a lot of venture firms, they don't have any black people on their investing team and they might not have any black founders in their entire portfolio. I mean, I've talked to some general partners privately who've told me like they don't remember the last time they had a black founder pitch at the all partner meeting. And so the thing that I am happy about is I think for a long time, black and brown people have been saying, guys, these are not isolated events. If there's someone who's a victim of police brutality who loses their life in a different city in America every week, that's a pattern. That's not a bunch of isolated incidents. And it felt very frustrating because there was no space for that conversation. And it's almost like overnight, everyone said, wow, we see the pattern. I think the challenging thing for tech is going to be how does tech and venture make itself an industry that is hospitable for people of color? And I've told a bunch of firms, I'm like, you know, to really make a difference, you're going to have to hire different people to work on your investment team. And you're going to have to have an investment process where black and brown people get to the finish line. And anything short of that, to me, is concerning. And so I've been you know, really pushing people to say, if you don't have black and brown founders 
showing up at the finish line of your of your funnel. And look, venture capital financing goes to a very small chunk of companies. But if they're not showing up at the finish line, rather than create a parallel process or an on-ramp, figure out what it is about your core funnel that doesn't work. Most of us in venture can we, can't uh, even- I actually just yeah. kind of want to dig, dig into that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, how much of this do you think is driven by... Well, so, um, you know, there's the venture side of it. There's the founder side of it. How much of it do you think it's driven by sort of the, the archetype of the founder that Silicon Valley is sort of romanticized, right? So you have, you have Zuckerberg, you have, you know, Travis from Uber, you have, uh, you know, Elon. And so it's generally this sort of maverick white guy, you know, who, yeah. who's going against some, some force and, I mean, is it really possible to change without creating a new archetype? And follow-on question to that is, who is the archetype, right? Who who does it have to shift to? Is there a person or a company that that sort of embodies this new new archetype? I mean, I'd argue Toby from Shopify is a pretty different person in that regard. In terms of like personality profile, self-presentation, I'd say Shopify has been a pretty good venture investment. I think there's this myth that you have to be this like cunning, cutting edge, hyper alpha person to be a successful founder. What I'd argue is it's actually the reverse. If that's kind of what you think works and, and you over index on that, you will get people that are successful with that profile. The bigger question is like, well, what are you missing out on by saying like, this is the rigid profile? I think the bigger issue is most venture sourcing is still kind of happens in closed proprietary networks. And if you look at those networks, whether it's like my alma mater, Stanford or Harvard or, you know, whatever the, the top 10 rated institutions are, they're not particularly racially diverse. If you look at the tech companies where investors are comfortable sourcing talent, those companies aren't particularly diverse. And so if you just said like, hey, we're going to like stick with our sourcing strategy of like public tech companies in the Bay Area, plus startups we know, plus engineers and product managers from a handful of private companies that we like or schools that we know, no matter how hard you work that channel, it's only going to produce so many black and brown people, period. So the real challenge for the industry is like, are you willing to revisit not just the archetype of what a founder looks like? but where founders come from. I buy that. I mean, I think that there's an acknowledgement inside of organizations that you've got to be mindful of kind of where, where you're looking to grow your businesses. And when you're thinking about places that have geo distributions or different networks, you can actually be a lot more uh, smart about building an organization that represents the world that you work in and that you're building products for. I wanted to, um, so, so thank you for sharing that. I want to shift gears a little bit, same broad topic. Um, There's some meetings that happened over the course of the last few days uh, that the Washington Post wrote about and USA Today, like a bunch of different, with Facebook in particular. So a bunch of civil rights leaders got together with some of the executives at Facebook to talk about some of the systemic issues that they believe exist on their platform. And um, they're big drivers for the ad boycott that's taking place right now. I'm kind of curious how you see that playing out? Like, are we going to see change coming because advertisers are pulling out of Facebook? Is there an acknowledgement that some of the topic that uh, we're just talking about now has a relationship into Facebook's platform? But kind of broadly speaking, what do you think is going to happen with Facebook over the course of the next several months uh, with, with all that's happening right now? I think this is a fascinating question. And I, 
I don't know that I have a clear answer. What I do think is I think what the what the civil rights organizations are asking for to me seems eminently reasonable, which is like, hey, find a better way to police hate speech and some of these like things that are obviously not true and destructive that are potentially indoctrinating people with harmful and dangerous beliefs do more to stop this from happening. And everything I've read from their point of view about how that meeting went, I think a couple of the articles I read use the word appeasement, Mm -hmm. which I think people only use that word very intentionally, which the takeaway I got was that Facebook from the point of view of these organizations does not seem to be serious in addressing this. And more importantly, I think has a fundamentally different view of its role in this conversation than those organizations do. And only one of, there's only one of two states of the world I can kind of easily imagine. One is that the leadership at that company holds fast on their current view of their role in society and their role when it comes to dealing with this type of content. And they just take the short-term pressure that's going to come from ad boycotts and maybe bet cynically that companies can't afford to not advertise on Facebook for very long and that they'll come back. Or they evolve their thinking and say, maybe we should revisit our views on this topic. Like I was pleasantly surprised to see Twitter start to take as a, as a counterpoint to take some actions on some of these things. Like all these companies could, I think be doing a lot more, but again, I think this goes back to this thing we talked about earlier, which is I think most of many of these people couldn't envision a world in which their creations were being used in ways that they didn't intend and that are harmful for society. And at some point when like the way people are using a product is different than the way that you had intended. I, I don't know. I would feel responsibility for fixing that if it were my product. I'm not Mark Zuckerberg, so I can't really tell him what to do. I just know personally, I would feel a tremendous amount of responsibility if something I had built was being used in that way. Yeah, I, I totally and completely agree with you. I think we see that playing out with, I mean, the apps du jour, be it Clubhouse or Parlor. Like at the end of the day, if you're the founder, you've created something, people are getting value from it, and then something happens that you don't expect and is bad, um, you got to take the feedback and make a decision if you're going to change or not. And if you make a decision to not change, then I think that says something. And I think probably probably it says something that uh, should have consumers choose to not use those products in the same way. And maybe that's an evocative statement. So I'm, um, I, 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 want, I have to interject and I have to ask Charles about this. Uh, since you brought up Yasha Clubhouse, our favorite subject to text back and forth on. And disclosure here is I, I am a Clubhouse member. And, you know, I've been trying to get Yasha in, but, you know, to no avail, I guess they, they just don't, I don't know, they don't want to give him an invite. Um, <laughs> you're supposed to look, <laughs> um, you know, but, uh, but look, I, I, uh, I'm fascinated by kind of, you know, Charles, your, I, I would be curious to know just your, per, your perception on social networks and so, and where they logically end. And so Twitter is kind of turned into this you know, depending on who you follow, the experience varies. Facebook, you know, we have alleged, you know, Russian interference here and there and just all sorts of other stuff going on. And then, you know, Clubhouse, what, what the experience like there for me was as a, as a new, you know, person joined six weeks ago, I really like what, what Paul and, and Rohan are building. I think it has a lot of potential, but 
but it quickly kind of got to this place where we're having a, a, you know, a heated debate and, you know, and recording on the platform. I guess my question is just, is, is all social media just, is it inevitable that it turns into a hate machine or is there, is there an outcome where it doesn't? Wow. That's such a big <laughs> question. <laughs> I do am a clubhouse member and I, I enjoy the product and, um, I think uh, it's really different than anything else I've used. When it comes to sort of like what's the end game, I think almost all ad-supported social media products end up in this conundrum, which is in order to make the ad-supported model work, you need a large audience. In order to build a large audience, you have to focus on growth. And things that limit growth, like content moderation or having rules about what one can and cannot discuss or say or friction tend to impact growth in a negative way. And so I think some of the problems we have in social media are maybe the belief that once we get to scale, we'll deal with this then, or it's only a couple of trolls. And so like we can live with it. It's basically fine. I think what I've learned is that the people who want to harass people and make their lives miserable have a lot of time on their hands and are willing to chase people across platforms. So my general view is I haven't seen many companies early in their life say, you know what, we're not going to put up with this. Like we don't want this on our platform. Maybe I would say the counterexample is I think discord has done a pretty good job by all accounts of being kind of unambiguous at various times that like, Hey, this is discord is not a place for this type of activity. You want to organize for this or use this. Like we're not the infrastructure to enable you all to congregate. And I don't know all of the details well enough, but my sense is like, they've decided that there's certain stuff that's just not going to happen on discord and they've been able to grow just fine. But I think if you, if you start a social media company with a belief that like content moderation policies and rules like that are going to create friction and slow you down, I think you're less likely to care about or enforce those things. And then you end up with the platform where it's rampant and those people maybe rightly feel like, well, Hey, you've let us be here all along. What gives? This leads me to my next, uh, you know, next question before we ask sort of wrap up questions, which is just another, it's another big one, but you're, you know, you're really articulate and you're able to synthesize these complicated subjects into into very, very good, you know, sound bites for, for our listeners. It's around free speech, right? And so we have to have this chat for just a minute. I mean, where are you on this whole, you know, free speech, absolutism spectrum? And, you know, what, you know, what, it's just, it's right now, it's the topic of the moment. And I'm just curious where you stand and where, where you think tech's role is in regulating speech. I generally am pro free speech. I'm not an absolutist by by any stretch. I think when I look at the current tech debate, I think there's two different conversations that are happening. And I'll characterize them there this way. There's the like, well, you're just not allowed to say this on social media anymore. So that's not fun. My speech is being restricted. There's like that bucket, which I think is different. Then there's the like things I think we could generally agree are threatening, 
hateful, scary incitements to violence, maybe even? And are the standards around who's allowed to say that stuff and have it remain up, are they applied consistently and fairly? So let's start with the first one, which is the like, you can't say this on social media. I think it's kind of a BS argument. You can say whatever you want, but if you say something stupid or offensive, people are going to tell you. And you might feel like you're getting attacked for saying something that like sounds innocuous to you. Or when you say it, you don't understand how it's going to land for people. And I think pre-social media, there was no feedback loop for people, especially if you're powerful. So if you were powerful and you said something that people didn't agree with or like, you didn't have to listen. And in fact, they probably had no channel to express their displeasure or frustration or tell you to think about this a different way. And I think for people in power, this is a new thing, which is like, if you're going to say it on some of these public social media platforms, the nature of those platforms is that the people that feel aggrieved are going to feel entitled and very able to tell you why they think what you said was dumb till you're stupid. So this notion you can't say it for most people, I think is simply untrue. You might not want to deal with the consequences. You might not want to have your replies blown up with a bunch of people who disagree with you. But I think there's very few things that I see, at least in tech and business Twitter, that one cannot say if you're prepared to deal with the backlash. I think yeah, they say there is a, there's, there's absolute freedom of speech. There's just not always freedom after speech. Yeah. And I think if you want to say, I have people that I, whose political views and personal views are very different than my own, and they share those views on Twitter, and sometimes they get constructive criticism and they don't like it. Uh, and I don't know what to say other than to say when you express your views publicly, you are opening yourself up to that, given the way that these things, given the way these networks work today. I think, by the way, this is particularly true of VC Twitter. And I've said things before. People have said, hey, that's really not a very informed comment. I'm like, well, thank you for letting me know. Uh, because powerful people, I think, are just not used to that kind of accountability. I, so I, I think that's fine, that people should just understand that's the way that the world works now. I have a much harder time with this notion that we should allow people um, who are trying to organize hate speech, who are trying to brigade people offline. Like, I don't understand why we have to have such a laissez-faire attitude toward these things, because what you're really doing is you're pushing all of the costs of dealing with this stuff down to the victim. And I think you have to remember that like social media makes it really easy for mobs to organize and for those people to go after people powerful or powerless. And I think for some of these platforms to say, well, we had no idea that this like activity or this organization or this group or this list, we had no idea or this thread or Reddit, we had no idea what they were up to. I'm like, come on guys, really? It's a choice. It's a choice that you're going to allow that stuff to be up rather than to take a position and say, our platform is not for this. Like I was quite surprised that Reddit did what they did with the Donald. Mm -hmm. I, I thought that would like, probably never happen for fear of like angering the audience of people for whom that's their home. Yeah. Charles, I want to set you up for our final question. And, um, and then I want to ask you two really quick questions before that. The final question is um, related to the social networks that you spend your time. So maybe we can pick Twitter or LinkedIn or anywhere else that you spend your time. Um, that question is, whom would you recommend to our listeners to follow on this network? So think about that question for a second, but we've got two relatively quick questions. 
The first one is uh, related to the U.S. election coming up in November. So who, who wins in November? I have no idea who wins in November. If you had told me we could have a global pandemic, mass unemployment, lockdowns where we're not sure that schools are going to reopen in the fall, the greatest civil rights protests we've had in 50 years, and the, the incumbent is still actively in the conversation for potentially winning. I think that says a lot about where we are. Yeah. All right. Here's my follow-on for you. <laughs> uh, I appreciate that answer uh, very much. Uh, in spite of me wanting you just to say definitively, <laughs> I know who's going to win. Uh, second question is, you, you know, you've lived in the Bay Area for a while now, and you kind of work in the space that you do, and we've been having this conversation about lots of different topics. On the spectrum of being a pessimist or an optimist over the next five years, like where do you find yourself? I'm a huge optimist, which can feel really hard given the current state of our city with the people that are unhoused and some of the challenges we have in general with just the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm an optimist because I feel like we're getting to the breaking point in San Francisco with so many things around housing, transit, quality of life. This is a, like if you zoom out, it's a beautiful place to live. Like we have everything. We have wine country. We have Big Sur. We have the San Francisco Bay. We have great weather. This is like too beautiful of a place for us to screw it up. <laughs> but clearly we've, we've gotten pretty, we've, we've done a pretty good job of, of backing ourselves into a really tough corner. And I think we're approaching a breaking point where some things, particularly I think around housing policy and the way that we allocate, um, land, they're going to have to come back on the table if this San Francisco experiment is going to continue to work. And maybe like many things in America, you have to get pushed to the brink before you can really make change. And one of the things that I'm hopeful for coming out of COVID and as we start to rebuild the economy is that things that were difficult to touch and deal with before get back on the table. And I think a lot of that's like how we use our streets, how we allocate land, how we think about housing. I really hope that we take advantage of this opportunity to rethink some of these things. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, it's been awesome having you on today. Um, I want to end off our discussion with our final question, which is on the networks that you spend your time, who are recommended follows to the listeners of this podcast? Man, it's always so difficult. I feel like I'm going to like <laughs> inadvertently snub people. I would say, <laughs> um, you know, I tend to, a long time ago, um, Chris Dixon had a tweet back when he tweeted a lot about like Twitter is more fun if you're positive. Is something to that agree? To that, to that, um, I would say Lolita Taub is one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter mm -hmm. because she's doing a lot of cool work, I think, to bring new people into the venture ecosystem. And the majority of the content she puts out is positive. And it's not always easy to be a positive advocate for change in tech. Yeah. And I really enjoy sort of seeing her thrive and succeed on Twitter. It's a lot of fun. Uh, the other person I would highly recommend because he is one of the funniest people I know is Reggie James from Eternal. And disclosure, I'm an investor in his company, but I would be an avid follower of his Twitter and Substack, even if I were not. Um, I'm in my forties and like the energy I get from him as someone who's much younger than me going through the world. It's, it's energizing. 
Hey, speaking as another 40 year old person, uh, plus, I certainly agree with you. You got to have the kind of those people who give you a little bit of a fresher kind of pop of energy in your life for sure. Hey, Charles, um, we really appreciate you being on with us today. Thank you so much for having such a thoughtful conversation. This was awesome. This was Thanks awesome. for having me, guys. Thanks, Charles. Thank you. So, Neil, I'm curious after having that conversation with Charles, how do you think about social media? Do you think it kind of maintains the momentum that is being created around it well off into the future? Well, I mean, I think the, the point Charles was making around, uh, you know, we talked about Clubhouse a bit, is a really, really interesting point. And just in social networks in general, which is, you know, the networks that, uh, you know, underinvest in moderation tools are naturally sort of hated, you know, toward the end and thought of as sort of these negative places to be. But if they invest upfront too much in moderation tools, then how do they grow fast enough to build critical mass? And it's just, it's a fascinating question that I really enjoyed exploring with them. Yeah, um, I, I appreciated today's conversation quite a bit. Super wide ranging uh, and really engaging. Charles is a, just a really wonderful person. Yeah, we, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. And as always, uh, if you enjoyed this as, as much as I, I'm re- reversing the lines today, as much as I enjoy recording with Yasha, please rate us five stars on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. We really, really appreciate you supporting the show, especially during these strange times. Thanks for listening to This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast as much as Sunil and I enjoyed recording it, please go back to the application you found this podcast on, rank us five stars, leave us a comment. We read every single one. Thanks for listening to This Is Your Life in Silicon Valley.